But we saw in the last panel, uh, content moderation without government doesn't uh, necessarily uh, satisfy everyone. But we're going to explore other aspects uh, to it in this panel. We have an excellent panel to, to study that or to talk about that very question. Um, on the end here, let me do brief introductions. On the end, we have Alex Fierst, who is general counsel at Neuralink. And when you see him, ask him about the amusing and horrifying thing he says about uh, uh, his, which is both a mostly a joke and uh, but very interesting. Uh, he was at Medium for five years. Many of you will know Medium from uh, online, and four of which were as head of legal and head of trust and safety. He is and has been for a decade a non-residential fellow at Stanford Center for Internet and Society. He holds, and this is kind of, I find scary actually, he holds a JD from Columbia and a PhD from Duke. So um, there's a lot of people like that out in the West Coast. Uh, second next to er, uh, Alex is uh, Emma Lanslow, who is director of um, the Committee on, for Democracy and Technology, a free expression product, project, which works to promote law and policy that support internet users' free expression rights in the United States and around the world. She leads their legislative advocacy and amicus activity around freedom of expression in the US and the EU, crucially. Uh, this work focuses on protecting fundamental rights to freedom of expression and preserving strong intermediate liability protections, which is Section 230 is about intermediary uh, liability protections. She also works to develop content policy best practices with internet content platform and advocates for user empowerment tools and other alternatives to government regulation of online speech. So very apt background. And thank you for joining us at, at short notice, uh, Emma. Jacob Machagama is a Danish lawyer, human rights advocate, and social commentator. He is the founder and director of Justitia, which is a Copenhagen-based think tank focusing on human rights, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. For six years, he served as the chief legal counsel at the Center for Political Studies in Denmark. Uh, crucially, he is the host of the excellent Clear and Present Danger, a History of Free Speech podcast, which I highly recommend to you uh, on your favorite uh, podcast catalog. Uh, which uh, over the last couple of years has explored both the history of free speech, the reasons for free speech, and indeed the history of liberalism itself over a, a couple of thousand years. Um, he has written about both the history of hate speech and the decline of free speech in cyberspace. So there's a lot of things in American history, including judicial doctrine, including what we're talking about, Section 230 legislation, uh, what was talked about in, uh, by Eric Goldman in the last uh, session we had about the state action doctrine. There's, all of these things point to the whole idea that content moderation for social media platforms will be done by private companies. So that raises a lot of questions. You've seen some of them. I want to begin uh, with Alex by mentioning something um, from a man named Mike Masnick, who is head of uh, and founded a website called Tech Dirt that some of you may read. Um, and Mike's question is one that's sort of, we try to be fundamental here at Cato and go back to roots and debate to basic ideas. Masnick has argue, argues that content moderation uh, by private entities, maybe in general, is not possible. And it's not possible because there can be no general agreement about what should, be, what should stay up 
and what should be taken down, or you could even expand that and what should be given a label and what should be unlabeled and so on, the content moderation that is done. Um, so Alex, is content moderation possible over the long term? And if so, should it be done by private companies or is there roles for other entities? Yeah, um, so th thanks for inviting me to, to talk about this. Um, I, think, I think I've been saying since before it was a pun that, that doing content moderation the way that we currently do it is Russian roulette. That you, um, you're, you're that's going. Not, that's not reassuring. You're, you're uh, from from the perspective of a platform. I think part of part of my like mission in coming to, to Washington from time to time is just to try to sort of talk to people about like the experience of spending a bunch of years trying to trying to do this and running a team doing this work. And I think one of the first things that you learn is that um, the problem of scale of just processing however many pieces of content you're doing a day, which is like. 500 million tweets or, or whichever company you work for, it's gonna be a bunch with Medium, it's over 10,000 posts a day. And the non-technological problem of, of human intersubjectivity that we're going to disagree over which things are what sets the stage for an, a relatively impossible challenge of finding something that people will agree is one thing or another. So before you get to the question of should we do it with AI? Should we hire people to do it this way? What should the proper wage be for people? What's the correct tool set? How do we create rules that are not vague? The mere question of creating rule sets and creating um, and making calls about balls and strikes at that scale is going to mean that some percentage of people will think you're wrong. And people, and, and as, as subjective people, we experience that as not accurate, because I think like the conversation this morning was about like, oh, what's the accuracy rate? Did you correctly call this as hate speech? Did you correctly call this as abuse? And I think the point is like, with two billion users of some platforms, you're going to get two billion opinions about what's in and what's out. So before you even get to the question of like, how do you implement this? How do you operationalize it? Where do we lose our cost curves? Like you're simply dealing with taking two billion human consciousnesses who disagree over what is what, and then asking them to come to a consensus. And then if they don't, they can all be mad at you as, as the company. Mm -hmm. So this is partly why my, my experience of this is that um, when, you, when you start doing this work at a, uh, you know, at a, at a, at a company, um, you just start getting emails, right? One doesn't sit down and say like, oh, I would like to come up with content policy and enforce it upon the world. You'll say, I wanna make some software and help people, help people talk to each other in whatever way. And then you start getting emails and those emails vary in nature and they can be like, I don't know how to log in or I'm getting a lot of spam or somebody abused me or somebody is causing violence, right? So, so there's like a, there's a, a range of things that happen. And then you start having to make a system that makes calls with consistency um, and, and a sense of fairness and due process to the folks who are doing it. So I guess all of this is to say, um, one of the things that I tell folks is that if you're gonna put pen to paper about this very hard problem, um, I suggest you spin up a Facebook group or, or a subreddit or a something and then moderate it. Mm. Get your 50 or 100 closest and most disagreeable friends um, to talk about some substantive topic and see how you do. And I think you'll learn a couple of things. And one of these things is that it is harder than it looks, but then also with even 100 opinionated consciousnesses um, to moderate, you're gonna find that it's virtually impossible to make everyone happy. And if you're a company, that's maybe okay at some level, but there's undoubtedly going to be um, that level of dissatisfaction with what you do, and it's gonna be phrased as, this is inaccurate, this is biased, this is, an, there, there's, there's reasons why people experience um, having something taken down as a dignitary harm that are, I think are very legitimate. I think, but the fact is the, the fundamental problem of setting up a platform 
and then having, then making calls about things that millions or billions of people are, are experiencing, the only outcome is going to be to some large percentage of them being angry at you. And that's just a function of human subjectivity, and it's a thing that has to be acknowledged in the way that this problem is framed. There might be another world where we create these technologies differently to have different outcomes, but at least at the world we're living in now, it's hard for me to see an outcome where, we, where, where massive disagreement over the fundamental exercise um, is going to be the outcome. You can do it with more or less efficiency and more or less grace and more or less transparency, but that's largely going to be the end game. So there is, I mean, when you talk about this, or you talk about content moderation without government, often the answer is, or a concern is, but what about political accountability? And I also think for the content moderators, for managers, there's often a tendency to want the government involved because I just, this is a puzzle I can't solve, and I'd, I think government will do that, the, will so, help me solve that problem. But the problem is, Political accountability, you go through a process on some issues, but this doesn't seem like that sort of process. It just seems like you're going to move off a lot of angry people into the political process, you know, get a resolution, but then it'll be like other political issues. Everyone will be upset about the resolution you get from the politics. Now, it could be wrong about that, but that's the, I question the competence of government to solve the problem you've pointed to, but you must have felt like, God, I wish somebody else would deal with this at times. Yeah, I think I, this is, I sometimes used to call this like the no good candidate problem uh -huh. of like, who do, who do you want regulating your speech? And so it's like companies, no. Governments, really no. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like then people have an inchoate sense of like the community. But what that often means on the internet is like a group of people using tools made by a company under the shadow of the government to do things that are also sort of invisible. So, so if you look at the menu options, they're all one blend or another of government, sort of like government um, uh, you know, control hanging over some private yeah. company's action. Yeah. And a lot of them are understandably unsatisfying to people. I think even when you think about like whichever product you're using, like who is the community? Like what are you consenting into? And what rules are you going to be governed by? The more, the more that you feel that you're, my, my view is like the more that there is structure, if you have a smaller community that is like oriented around some topic or some activity, there's more of a logic to you know, having your behavior regulated by human norms. And the more something feels monolithic and undifferentiated, the more of a problem it is. And this is like why I think one of, one of my sense of it is that um, if there's a sense of scale and proportion and other things that I think we're learning to do better now um, you know, as, as, as builders, um, whatever will cause you as a user to, whatever will cause your sense of human um, intuition to kick in, that you're in an environment where speech norms matter, the less we probably need enforcement, mm -hmm. you know, because enforcement is sort of like the end of the road where many, many things have gone wrong if you need to do massive enforcement as a society and also as a platform. So in a world where um, platforms, if I can use that word anymore for Eric, um, uh, are, um, are making design choices that cause people, however we do this, to experience speech norms and do the things that happen in everyday life where you have things that you might say but you don't say, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. that will probably be better than having rules that are enforced um, as, as, hard, you know, as hard backstops. But I think, but I think the, the, um, the current interest in enforcement is partly a function and maybe a failure of our online interactions of having all those more finely gradated um, types of norms, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it feels to me like we're at the equivalent of a society obsessed with criminal justice or like obsessed with prison architecture, like there's a, there's a huge amount of intensity around the enforcement discussion right. right now. There's not as much intensity around the discussion of like fostering, fostering online environments where community norms do a lot of the work. 
and that's hard. And it's and it's and it's also a thing that um, has a lot of like complicated causation. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I think that's that's where like a lot of a lot of the interest is. So so I suppose um, I'm not sure if that an answers your question, but I, I I think like I ask people like what what would cause one to know like what information could one get that would allow them to say like okay. I feel confident that I was taken down because I was abusing somebody and not because I was abusing them and also voicing my views about X, Y, or Z. Because usually, like, the things that happen on platforms, it's not like there's political speech and then somebody doing conduct thing X, Y, or Z that's, yeah. that's prohibited. It's a blend, right? And people make hard calls around that. But I, I accept that there's a trust deficit and there's transparency problems that I think Eric, like, very correctly adverted to that, you know, um, if, if one wants to, like, put out all this data, there's all sorts of people's privacy rights that you're potentially... Um, yeah. waving for them if you do it that way. But I'm, I'm honestly interested in working backwards in the outcome of like, what, what does it look like to be satisfied that like, oh, I was taken down because I was being a jerk, not because I was being, um, you know, political view, of a certain political view. I'm satisfied with that outcome. I don't know if that even happens in court. Yeah, that seems, ultimately that would be the solution. It's hard to see how to get there. Emma, I'm interested in the idea of user empowerment and also best practices. User empowerment seems like a very libertarian idea. I don't know if it's compatible with actually as a business uh, platform working, but it seems like a, you know if I can through my own efforts, and I don't have to be, I don't want to be exposed to something. That would seem to be the way to do it. Probably some of the ways we do it now. Mm -hmm. uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of different ways, and so much that um, that Alex covered uh, that I think would be be interesting to to dig more into, because um, I think this question of like, can you do content moderation well? I've I've heard Mike phrase this as you know like it's impossible to do content moderation well, and part of that is because people don't agree on what well means, mm. right? And I think that's a really important thing to think about when we're talking about what do we want out of content moderation? What is the goal we're trying to seek? And so if the goal is, say, in the kind of criminal justice focused uh, environment we're in now kind of approach that it's 100% eradication of all illegal content on a platform or online, well, that's impossible, right? Like we're, that's definitely impossible. We're never going to hit 100% removal of all illegal content. Um, but what are the goals that are achievable or can work in different that you raise the question about kind of business models and I think one of the big questions that is definitely either explicitly or implicitly part of the conversations for especially extremely large-scale platforms is how does content moderation play into brand protection and reputation um, it how is it related to their commercial interests and that I think can raise a lot of these questions um, questions about trust uh, between users and the platform about like what's really motivating what is happening to my content moderator to my speech on this platform um, but my my colleague Liz Woolery and I at CDT have been doing research into kind of what actually works in content moderation who what are examples of success stories or things that have um, actually really borne out positive, constructive, enjoyable experiences online, because they are still out there. There are actually lots of small services, um, communities who've eked out a space on larger platforms. There's actually still a lot of really positive engagement going on online. Um, it's just, it's not the stuff that makes it into headlines. Uh, and I think our, our top finding was that um, it's different for different kinds of services and for different kinds of communities, um, because you have different sorts of needs and interests, um, problems, whether they're 
subject matter problems, particular kinds of issues like hate speech or terrorist propaganda that might um, plague a particular community that they don't want to be part of it. Uh, or you just have kind of ways of interaction, interacting among people that in that context are either positive or understood as harassment that you need to actually tailor a relatively specific rule to for your particular smaller community of people to make that communication experience actually constructive. Um, so the I think in big picture, some of the the best best practices we've seen are end up really at a pretty high level of principle. It's things like making sure your users are able to understand what the rules are on the platform. Because people definitely can't follow rules that they don't even know exist or they don't understand what they mean. Um, giving people notice about what is it, what is the rule that they have violated when their content gets um, action, when their account gets removed in some way. Because again, you, you lose any opportunity for that kind of, that sense of legitimacy of this action being taken against me if it seems totally arbitrary that my post has come down um, or that you know, my account has been has been taken down. Um, but then when you move to the level of kind of more specific platforms, you see a variety of different tools and practices that can work in some contexts and maybe don't work in others. Uh, there's a good, um, there's a, a number of different studies on different Reddit communities and using the, um, the technique of signposting thread-specific rules, subreddit-specific rules at the top of, um, of the subreddit so that they are right there in front of people and kind of a lot of times presented as these are the rules of engagement here. Just so you know, we've got like five of them and you will be, your post will be taken down if you do X, Y, and Z. Um, and actually kind of studying the effect that that really explicit posting of rules kind of just in time, just when people are about to start commenting can really meaningfully improve quality of discourse um, and crucially like participant of new speakers and new commenters in those threads versus um, you know times before they had those rules posted. Now that's not gonna make sense in every kind of online discussion forum. It's probably not gonna work in every kind of online discussion forum because at least on a subreddit you have people kind of self-selecting to, I'm interested enough in this topic that I'd like to be able to participate in a conversation, so maybe I'm willing to, to take on board these rules about you can't say this or that. Um, so I think when we talk about how to make content moderation more responsive to user interest and getting back to your question about user empowerment, I think it can look a lot of different ways, right? Some, the kind of the general ethos of the internet as an empowering communications medium for people really goes back to the fact that it is possible to find places or to make your own spaces online that kind of serve the needs of yourself, your community. Um, the big question I have right now about the whole kind of user empowerment approach is what does it look like on a very, very large site like a Facebook or a YouTube? Yeah. What tools are available already on those services? And, and there are some things like Facebook groups. Um, you know, uh, I think Alex was suggesting people try moderating a Facebook group. It's possible, you do get some tools. There are some rules and um, you know, kind of administrator powers that moderators for those groups can use. Um, but what more is there? What a, and I think that really goes into diagnosing what are the, um, the problems, the whether it's negative interactions and experiences or proliferation of illegal material, what are the specific problems that we're trying to address, and are there actually tools that in a particular site's context could be um, useful to answering those, but it's probably not gonna be a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the most effective things Facebook has done is go around this country and other countries and take cases with them 
and then get people like, content moderation in small groups to look at something that was put up. What did you decide? Here's what we decided. We changed it, and so on. It's an incredibly difficult job, at the, even given the context of their rules. Uh, but it also informed people of that, because I think most people uh, think they're on a political jihad or something like that, or just personal preferences. All of this does, the con private content moderation, though, does raise a sort of uh, long-term, I think, libertarian question, which is, you have these private companies doing things. People are concerned about it, sometimes politically, sometimes other reasons about the content of speech. And it's separate from government, but as you said, I think, Alex, the, the, the over, it was sort of, it's there. It's in the background. That's part of the question. Sometimes governments act more directly without doing things. In, in the First Amendment doctrine, it's, I've been uh, surprised to find that it's quite a, difficult to discern where the line can be drawn in terms of what, you know, if government tells you you have to take down speech or ban someone's speech, that's obvious. But what if Mark Zuckerberg does it at the because Ted Cruz has given a speech that seemed kind of threatening to him, even though it didn't actually result in anything? There's that, that background. Um, Jacob, in Europe, there's a long tradition, you know, of community standards, content, of how government affects content moderation and community standards, certainly both at the EU level and perhaps with Germany. Uh, and then I, even at the UK in the recent white paper, you see that there's sort of like a government element coming into these kinds of, um, so what is that background and how does, what can we look forward to in a sense in America about how that is it we go more internationally with these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, exactly correct. You, you very often hear this complaint that <clears throat> today the public sphere is, uh, is basically regulated by American uh, private companies without any uh, democratic legitimacy and so on. And to a certain extent, that's, that's true. But I would argue that the development, the, the sort of scope creep of community standards and also the, the enforcement of, of thereof are uh, to a very large degree um, influenced by uh, European uh, standards for, for free speech and especially limits on free speech which uh, differ uh, substantially from, from uh, first, current First Amendment uh, doctrines. Um, uh, um, so um, let, let me give you an example. So, uh, so for instance, um, in, uh, in 2016, uh, the, the European Union, the Commission was so concerned about, uh, about hate speech online that they, uh, they sort of rounded up the, the, the big tech uh, companies and then they gave them what the Corleone family might have called an offer you can't refuse. Uh, so basically saying, hey guys, uh, would you mind uh, entering into a, an, a voluntary code of conduct uh, where you... Uh, agree to delete uh, hate speech that violates European standards uh, within 24 hours, uh, yes or no, if you, if, you, if you say no, we'll just regulate, we'll, we'll, we'll adopt legally binding uh, rules. Um, so, so that was in place in 2016. Nevertheless, Germany, which for historical reasons is particularly uh, concerned about uh, extreme speech, um, uh, and we can have a debate on, on whether that's misguided or not, but that's, that's a different point. Uh, um, basically became so concerned because they, according to their metrics, Facebook still didn't do enough under these voluntary uh, code of conduct. So they adopted the so-called Network Enforcement Act, the NetsDG, 
which was passed in 2017 and entered into force in 2018, which says that if you don't re re remove manifestly unlawful content within 24 hours or uh, more fussy content within a week, you risk a fine of up to 50 million uh, euros, which is, which is quite a lot. Um, and, um, and, and we've seen France follow through. France has actually also adopted a law against fake news. Britain is now, uh, will, will implement an online harms uh, uh, bill. Um, and the European uh, Commission, so the, 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 the EU Commissioner for, for Industry, uh, Thierry Breton, last month said that, had a meeting with, with Mark Zuckerberg and said basically, you have to conform to our standards, we don't have to conform to yours, and if you continue with this massive abuse of European standards, we will regulate you with legally binding rules in the upcoming Digital Services Act, which would then be sort of a potentially a, a Germany-style uh, law that was legally binding on all uh, member states uh, of, the European, uh, of the European Union. So, so this reflects an, a, a European uh, commitment to what you could call militant democracy. So, so, so basically a doctrine which says that you have to be intolerant towards the intolerant. Those who, have, who hold values that run contrary to liberal democratic uh, values uh, should be should basically be no platformed uh, from from the public uh, sphere. That that is the lesson uh, from from uh, from you know totalitarianism uh, that that that, that uh, European leaders ha have drawn, which which I think is is misguided. But 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 that's that's where we are. And w what does this mean? Well, um, I, I would say it has uh, impacted, um, the, like I said, the community standards substantially. Um, the growth of them, but also if you look at the, the, the number of actionable content, so, if, so from July to September 2018, Facebook took action on 2.9 million pieces of content. That, that same period, uh, 2019, it, was, it had jumped to 7 million pieces of content. And if you look at the uh, amount uh, of, 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 of the content that is being flagged, by, by machine learning, by, by algorithms, that has also jumped from, from around 30% in 2018 to now 80% when it comes to, to, to hate speech. Uh, and and why, should that, why, why should that worry us? Well, so, so my organization in Denmark, in Denmark, we have a hate speech law which says that uh, insulting and derogatory uh, comments towards certain groups uh, are, uh, are, uh, violate our, our criminal law. Um, and so we did a freedom of information request, and we, so we, we asked, you know, um, how long does it take to process, you know, a complaint or for, for so, like, someone says, uh, this guy violated uh, two, Section 266B of the Danish uh, Penal Code by, by, by uh, posting a hate speech uh, comment on, on Facebook. And we found that on average in 2019, it took 455 days before the prosecution arrived at a decision on whether to formally charge. And then it took 655 days before you had a decision in the first instance. Uh, so, so, so and, and of course, you know, there's more at stake in a criminal law case than, than you know, whether your post is being deleted on Facebook. But, but in essence, the, 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 the legal assessment uh, is more or less the same. And that, uh, I think, says something about, you know, what kinds of decisions are being made by moderators who are not, you know, experts in, in criminal law, and they have to make, you know, uh, these decisions uh, hundreds or maybe thousands, uh, each of them, uh, every day. So, so that shows that that, that is simply not a, uh, something that can be done with any 
respect for, for, for due process or, or sort of the, uh, the careful considerations, uh, free speech considerations that you would expect when it comes to a, a value such as, uh, such as uh, free speech. So, so, but, but another, uh, I think, pernicious development is that the NETS DG law, the German law, has actually been copy-pasted by a number of countries. So, so we looked at it in 2019. We identified 13 countries that had uh, adopted something similar or proposed to do so. Nine of them were sort of non-democratic uh, states. This included Venezuela, Russia, uh, Belarus, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Honduras, uh, I think. And many of them explicitly invoked the, the, the German law as a, as a precedent. Now, of course, this is, this is a bad faith uh, copy-paste move by, by most of these governments. They, they, they don't have the same rule of law guarantees that you have in, in, in Germany. The, the standards and categories of speech tend to be much broader, and they are basically a method to, to give legitimacy to, to closing down the, 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 the public sphere. But, 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 but being able to invoke the German president saying, this is a law that, that, was, uh, that is based on a model that was created by Europe's most influential uh, democracy basically gives you perfect ammunition for, for whataboutery, like authoritarian whataboutery, because you, know, you come and you criticize, well, why are uh, uh, critics of Vladimir Putin being uh, thrown off uh, v-contact uh, or, or the like? And then you say, well, you know, we're just doing what they're, what they're doing in, in Germany, so what, what's, what, uh, what, what's the problem? Um, um, so, 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 so I think the, the fact that you, the, the largest group of liberal democracies in the world are basically, um, basically forging the chains with which to, 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 to limit or restrict uh, online free speech is a, is, a, is a huge problem. And I think, you know, going back to, to some of the points that you also made, is that we have, to, we have to attack this from a basic premise of you cannot have a zero tolerance policy towards uh, uh, content moderation. And, and I think there, there's some good historical uh, precedents. So, 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 you know, there was a time when it was thought that, that um, ex, you know, uh, writings that undermined religion would be catastrophic. It would basically, you know, mean that the, the, everything would, would collapse. Maybe God himself would, would, would punish society because you allowed blasphemers out there to, to say horrible things. Mm -hmm. There was a time, you know, both in, in, this, in this country and, and, and in England where seditious libel laws basically said you can't criticize the government uh, because if you criticize the lawfully constituted authority, then everything uh, breaks down, all semblance of, of, of order and, and stability. We've come to learn that that is, that, that, that is, not the, uh, the, the, that is actually not the case. And I think we have to be realistic about that. Uh, in the, I think the only way to move towards a zero tolerance policy is to adopt a more Chinese approach uh, to, to, uh, to, to content moderation and online freedom. I don't think that, that, that that's something that we, should, that, that we should wish for, even though even the Chinese can't get I think, to, uh, to 100%. It is amazing, I think, uh, when talking to reporters or talking about and looking at the sort of baseline or the foundations of uh, controversial issues. Just yesterday, I talked to a reporter about a tweet that uh, President Trump's head of social media had put up, which was a video that had been altered. It wasn't a deep fake, but it was a sort of traditionally edited one. And um, the sort of background to the question was that shouldn't government be involved here to make sure that this kind of thing 
kind of to fool people about Joseph Biden shouldn't be allowed, which is not something, of course, that in the pre-online world would happen. We have, a, in fact, a broadcasting law that requires television stations to, to show that. Uh, but there does seem to be a desire for perfection that we really didn't expect from the old world prior to online, right, in a lot of ways. The other thing that interests me uh, here is you think about, in some sense, you can think about Europe winning, right? You think about a place like Facebook or many other uh, private content moderators. They're going to have rules about hate speech. And there's also going to be, the, I think, the other area is going to be called something. It's about falsehoods, but it's going to be called disinformation, misinformation. There is a, a cottage industry now of people talking about different kinds of falsehoods and keeping them off uh, the internet. So that's the one side. That's, that seems like, say, Facebook is following Euro European standards. But on the other hand, it could be following American standards in the following sense. A business is supposed to make money. The business of Facebook is to get people on this platform. It's a two-sided platform. You've got to keep the people there. That's a lot harder than you think. That's an American. We want businesses doing that, and you end up with these kinds of standards, not because they, uh, you may end up with them in Europe because of European governments, but you may end up for business reasons. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, so I think, um, so uh, to, to set aside the commercial aspect of it for a second, I think part of um, this moment, what, or what I think I've been thinking about a lot is, in, in the early internet days, and there's, there's many things that we probably were utopian and got, got wrong, but there was a notion that connecting with other people on the internet was a way to create a community that was specifically not the one that you were born into by geographic locality. Like you were supposed to create a community with norms and connections and possibilities that were not circumscribed by the nation state or your town or whatever. And that was what was good about it. And so we're having, and, 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 and there were also understandable things that happened where um, companies like uh, had different views on jurisdiction and there were, there's, there's been, there was an era when people sort of defaulted or didn't show up or sort of questioned different nation states um, jurisdiction over internet companies. We're in a moment now where it feels to me like there's, there's sort of a struggle between like the nation, like nation states or your European community and companies or really their users in the mm -hmm. sense that, that I think from the perspective understandably of like a country or the, or the EU or something like we are speaking for our, our community, our citizens, yeah. and we, we want to protect them from you, private tech company, from enforcing whatever your Silicon Valley norms or, or whatever arose on your platform. I think there's a view at many companies um, that is like also there's a group of users that want things from us and they're asking us for specific things that are not necessarily provided for by their, by their nation state. Um, so I think many tech companies would view themselves as not private, like, yes, of course, private actors, commercial actors, but also trying to do the thing that their users are asking them to do. Um, not, not trying to inflict something on them, but saying, like, these views on which content stays, which content goes, what should be encouraged, what should be downranked, yeah. that's, that's, what our, that's what our users want. And some of them live in, like, your plot of land, and some of them don't. Yeah. Um, but they're trying to come to something different together. So this is interesting because it goes back to these First Amendment questions on the last panel. It could be the assumption is that sort of our, our political opponents somehow have got control of these companies, and now they're enforcing their preferences on the rest of us. We conservatives are being banned, right? It could be that we have the First Amendment situation without uh, the courts. That is to say, majorities or they may represent what this is my feeling about what our people, the people, our users want. 
These could be majoritarian values that end up with hate speech. That end, that's what I was getting to with the business issue. I, I agree, and I, and I think one of the hard parts is sort of like which minority interests get abused in which ways, because mm -hmm. um, I think both both like nation state and also private actors have different ways of failing to do right by less less powerful groups. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's certainly folks um, who are from sort of internet policy land who would say like SESTA FOSTA and other things have really done a pretty poor job like of in the name of protecting some group has really disempowered a whole group a whole group of other people um, that whose lives are much worse as a result. Right. And so that was you know that was a failure of, of maybe of, of coverage or something. And so I think other critiques could go the other way that you know you have platforms that like you say, have rules that are based on the majority. We don't want to see this, or, or you know, um, and then groups, other groups are either disempowered or they're not. Um, the rules don't work the way that they want them to. And so it's in in a in a um, in a tech in a tech product that has a good amount of segmentation and proportionality, and like sort of the equivalent of neighborhoods, where you can go and do lots of different things in different ways. There's a little bit of a safety valve in my view that there's there's ways to interact where you can you can interact with a group with a group of people that you're choosing to interact with along a set of rules of the road that makes sense to you. Um, in, in products that are either, like I said, less differentiated or have less of a feeling of being able to make choices within that environment, mm -hmm. you're gonna have more of that feeling of like, oh, either I'm here or I'm not here, and if I'm here, I'm following this rule set, which I don't like, mm -hmm. or something like that. And so there's a lot, like, there's, there's potential for, I say, having different, either like, either the majority or like different sub-majorities, depending on what you're doing, um, of, of their views dominating and then creating these same sort of questions of like, how do you protect minority interests? And sort of Emma got at this other issue too that's similar uh, along these lines, which is the nature of consent. I mean, it's crucial the, the these companies have rules laid out and you actually consent to them when you join the uh, company. There, you, you, it has to be that way. Uh, but I, don't, I do think Emma's point earlier is a good one, that people don't know the rules. They also probably are pretty much unaware that they've consented to them. Because, uh, you know, you, I just want to get on the network, I think would be the more typical thing. Uh, and then the, the rules themselves, you know, what is the status of them? Because if we're going to set up courts about this, uh, or think of it in those terms as private uh, entities, you're also, the Constitution, in the United States has all sorts of historical problems, we know, but it has an ideal too, and you consent to it. It's a social contract ideal. You've agreed to these rules. So actually no one can complain when they get banned or something, get their speech gets regulated on Facebook because they agreed to the rules and now they've, and they agreed to a process for determining if you've broken the rules. But I'm not sure people see it that way at all. And indeed the content moderation rules, the community standards themselves, I tend to think of it as it's the consent is no worse than it is to the regular consent of in our political lives because no one really asked, if we don't move to Denmark, uh, you know we're assumed to have consented to the U.S. Constitution basically, and that's no one you don't really do that, and Facebook's sort of like that too, uh, but I I can well see that people would think of it differently, right? Well, and I think one of the, the big questions for, and it's, a, it's an empirical question, right, of like how much do 
users of particular services know about what those rules are? What do they know about the availability of opportunities to appeal or to flag and report content, right? I mean, because content policies only, aren't only about taking some people's content down, it's helping other people protect themselves from abuse or harassment by bringing in the, the service provider to say, hey, something's happening that's against your rules. Um, so I think there's absolutely, <laughs> to, to your point, that uh, just having a long set of terms of service or even a really detailed set of community guidelines doesn't necessarily translate into your users understanding what those rules are, let alone kind of internalizing them as norms. And I think that's a big challenge, again, especially on really large platforms where there is much less of that kind of direct participation in the development of the norms. If you think about a, a message board or a mailing list, or I'm sure everybody in this room is probably on some mailing lists, um, and the kind of the way that the norms of that list get developed, sometimes overtly, but also sometimes just by you watch and you see how other people send to that list. You send something, it gets a bad reply, you think, I'm not going to do that again. Um, you see somebody send an email that you just know is going to touch off two weeks of nonstop clutter in your inbox, and you archive the whole thread for a while. Um, you know, we, we actually do participate in the development and perpetuation of norms of online communication in a lot of different ways. But I think right now what we're seeing, especially with big social media companies, is a real disconnect between people's feeling of attachment, empowerment, and understanding of what those norms are, which then also makes them pretty bad purveyors of those norms and pretty bad kind of reinforcers of those norms if they're not sure what those are. But the community standards surely started out as a business proposition, and they grew out of the, in the sense that you do want to, that is to say what I mean by that is that we put these, ultimately we were trying to get this company growing through that period, and there was stuff on there that we thought ultimately would prevent that. Uh, we didn't ask people, but we put it out there, and it's also a majoritarian kind of thing. Uh, so that seems to be a big part of it. I wonder, some people have recommended, and this seems to me that in terms of participation, that instead of having content moderation as something that happens to me by people who own the service, I actually participate at a certain level. For example, there's been uh, discussions or proposals about acting as participants or users acting as juries, right? There was also a proposal by Cato uh, uh, adjunct fellow David Post several years ago that more of a, putting things on the agenda, more of uh, participation on elections. Now, in this particular case, uh, the Post uh, uh, proposal, it really didn't go anywhere because people didn't want to participate. It may well be the case that people want the service, but if you did something like try to have juries decide about some of these cases more user-oriented, I think the real question would be, would people do it? And on some services, they do, right? So there's a, a platform called Twitch that you might be familiar with. Um, that I, has... Probably not me, but it's, <laughs> I'm sure so. <laughs> well, it's for watching people play video games online. Yes. Um, so I'm sure I've you spend a it. lot of time <laughs> on it, yes. Um, and I believe Twitch and a couple other like video streaming platforms have um, actually used the jury concept in comments on videos, because you can get uh, very sort of unwieldy comment sections alongside streamers' videos. And so you can have people. So I, it, this is just to say that I think there are, this is a good example of circumstances where 
just the concept itself, absent any particular community, may not go very far. But you can also probably find specific applications of it where it's like, oh, because this is an invested community that has an interest in maintaining this particular part of it, the comment section alongside a stream, to be relatively functional, that you can actually get enough buy-in from people to do the job of volunteering, to do the job of moderating, and to do the job of the rest of the users of pretty much going along with what those rules are. Jago. Yeah, no, but, but I think, you know, <clears throat> to the extent that um, community guidelines are being developed, for instance, in, in Brussels and Berlin, uh, then they may not necessarily reflect, you know, uh, a, a profit uh, motive because they are guidelines that you would not have adopted uh, if you were not forced to it uh, by government. And if you're an American, you know, brought up with the First Amendment tradition, you could argue that it's, it's, it's a form of, of moderation without representation because these, these, these guidelines are, are not being shaped by, by politicians in, in DC, but by politicians in, in, uh, in Brussels and Berlin whom you have no, you have no uh, influence over in, in, in any uh, direct manner because you can't vote for them and, and you, you can't really uh, influence them. Yeah, there's a, a guy at the Cyber Law Podcast who often says, I want to be there the first time an American has their speech taken down because of European law. And they, he, he's convinced that that's the moment of conservative triumph. It'll just all fall apart then. Well, I think I, 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 I would argue that that happens every day. <laughs> that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> We're well past that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and depends where. I mean, it's also, I think, what part of where the rubber meets the road on this is, is in territoriality because it's sort of like you might have an American having their speech restricted in Europe when you have something geofenced. Um, and so you get part of, I think, what this has done is like create new, like splinter the, you know, creates, creates the splinter net and creates a question of like if different speech communities have their own norms to the extent that they're going to have different things happening, we're not going to have one internet. Um, we'll, have some, we'll have some other thing and we're not, we're not gonna have no internet. Yeah. But we're, it's certainly not going to be the same everywhere, and, and maybe yeah. that's an acceptable outcome. But we're not going to have whatever the vision was of connecting people and all of us seeing similar information is not going to be where we wind up. So uh, we're getting toward uh, the question and answer period. And we have actually a question from Twitter from Michael Nelson. Um, the question is, could better means of, for the entire panel, could the better means of digital ID favor better accountable online speech over anonymous hate speech from trolls and bots? In other words, what if 90% of Twitter users had blue check marks? So this is the whole question that also we haven't gone into much is the question of anonymity, uh, its role in this, and would, would speech be different if it weren't uh, anonymous? And would it be, would the pro in a sense, the question you raised initially about better people, would you have better people if you had, weren't anonymous? Despite the, I know the Federalist Papers were anonymous and yeah. all of that. That's, that's what people are going to argue. But there's this other side to it, right? I think the, like the current harms and frustrations are putting pressure on like some of the existing speech doctrines and norms, and anonymity is one of them. I think, so I, I guess should always start by saying there's sort of mixed, mixed research on this as to whether this helps as much as people might think. Like you, you won't have anonymous Russian trolls, but the notion that people will behave well because their real name is attached to their activity online, I think we've seen pretty well that that's not true in, in, in many instances. So it's like there's some conduct where it might make a difference, there's some conduct where it probably will make depressingly little difference. Um, um, but I think there's a whole bunch of folks in, in the US who'd say like anonymous speech has to be protected for lots of reasons, protecting people from the powerful, allowing certain you know, communities to, to, to find each other. Um, 
But I think in this current environment, I think of it as like, because the, the pressures of harms, um, government perception of harm and other things are putting pressure on you know, different, different ways that this mechanism has worked for a while. Yeah. Anonymous speech is definitely one of the things that feels like is, is bending a little bit because of this question of finding a solution. And another solution that people come up with is sort of like persistent identity that like you don't have to be you necessarily, but you have to be the same person more consistently and then at least your track record will inform people's right. ability to trust you and then there's like different technological versions of this. So I think the answer is like experimentation will probably happen but the, the notion that the law should be less protective of anonymous speech is also, I think, pretty worrisome. Yeah. Plus one to all of that, but also I thought it was interesting that, that Mike used the example of everyone will have a blue check mark to, because I think it does a great job at illustrating how how far and not really that far such an effort would go. Um, because Mike, as a savvy Twitter user, probably understands that like the blue check mark is about Twitter has verified that the identity behind this account is who they say they is. Right. And maybe lots of people in this room, you know, they know that it's it's a really pretty minimal guarantee of anything. But in the popular culture, it means all sorts of things. People have imputed a lot of meaning. It means veracity. It means uh, Twitter endorses this statement. They almost certainly do not. Um, you know, it, it, people read a lot of things into these kinds of labels. And I think we'd see the same thing with this idea that, oh, OK, somebody at a service provider has looked at your driver's license or your passport, if you have them, and decided you're OK to get online today doesn't really tell us much at all. And in the meantime, probably uh, means we have many fewer voices from um, marginalized and vulnerable communities um, part of the conversation. There's going to be, I mean, the pressure is on, and you're right about anonymity, but also these are transnational uh, entities for the most part, right? And there's, I mean, and even in the United States, I think the whole question of we, we, we did have had a fairly uh, mandated disclosure of people who give to campaigns, and you would have thought that that would have uh, caused lots of problems because actually it's people you have to publicly say you oppose somebody who's going to end up in office, and they might use the government against you. I think probably that kind of thing has had some bad effects, but it's had surprisingly few effects. Uh, uh, events in which the, you know, I, I was surprised in which the disclosed information is used by the government against people. But there are countries in the world where it will lead to people's deaths. It will lead to their liberties being, uh, and uh, these companies will have, you know, are you going to do some kind of geo-blocking in that and having different policies in different places and so on. I think uh, it's going to be very hard. It, it would be like, this. I think we have the same uh, consequences as European HPG laws that are being uh, used or abused, depending on your perspective, by authoritarian states for their own purposes, it would be the same with anonymity. It would be every dictator's dream to say, well, you know, it, the, the, this is the new global standard that you, you, you can't participate uh, on, on uh, social media platforms uh, anonymously. And, you know, would you want to? Would you want to, if you're an Egyptian, write something critical of the government there or any other number of countries where anonymity is absolutely essential for, 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 uh, for challenging, for speaking truth to power, basically? Well, what about the disinformation idea? So hate speech is one side of it. The other side is various forms of false speech or uh, transmitting false ideas. Doesn't that have uh, a lot of, I mean, the, the Russian example is always comes first and so on, but doesn't that have enormous uh, capacity for abuse? 
I, I was recently at a university, and uh, it was at a very mainstream kind of presentation, and the speaker who was talking about another report that had been done uh, was talking about uh, the problems of elections and disinformation, and he kept coming back to the example of Fox News. So my understanding into this point was, you know, disinformation, Russian trolls, so on and so forth. They're really the kind of, you might want to, there's protection issues and stuff, but nobody's really thinking about sort of the middle, what, for better or for worse, the, the speech is part of the political system in the United States. But he seemed to view Fox News as a disinformation source because it said things were, were, that weren't true. Is, is that really, so, what kind of threat does the idea of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, all those terms, uh, as a private matter, private content moderation uh, present? I think, you know, the laws against fake news and false information are really old. Like in, under, I think the, uh, you have an English president going back to 1275, but it's also like if you take every single authoritarian state and also the totalitarian ones, they have laws against uh, false, uh, false information, uh, disinformation, and, and, and it's one of the first things that they will legislate uh, about. Um, and, and it's quite interesting that, you know, some of the complaints that come out of, of, uh, of European democracies about Russian disinformation mirror <laughs> the complaints that the Soviet Union made in the 70s when, when they were being pushed to be more uh, free speech protective as, as part of the Helsinki Accord because you had, uh, you had Western radio stations that broadcast behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, some of them were government, some of them were CIA funded, I believe. Uh, and, and, and so the Soviet Union came out and said, this is uh, propaganda, this is uh, false information, you have to stop this, we, we won't uh, accept it. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this as, as you know, relativism or border boundary, uh, but I think it's a very different, difficult proposition to say you know, that, that democracies and, and, and institutions, private companies based in democracies should crack down uh, on disinformation because they have good values, whereas authoritarian states should allow, uh, are not allowed to do the same because they will just abuse it. Um, so we're running out of time. Let me turn to uh, Twitter again for our final question. Uh, comes from Jesse Blumenthal. If authoritarian countries splinter away, even if authoritarian countries splinter away, doesn't extraterritorial applications of speech laws from liberal democracies like countries in Europe create a race to the bottom for the countries that remain, a race to the bottom from a free speech point of view? I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, that was, <laughs> yeah. that was the, uh, the, the cyber law comment was that, you know, we're going to end up, whatever we end up with, whatever we want, we're going to end up with European laws, right, generally. Well, right? and I think, so one thing I'd, I'd like to draw out here, too, is that this, so what Jesse is referring to is something that's like actively happening in courts in Western democracies, this question of like extraterritorial reach of orders to companies to take content down and, and seeing governments like Germany, like Canada saying, we are not satisfied with the application, with this geofencing, with the application of German law within the boundaries of Germany or Canadian law within the boundaries of Canada. We want this down around the world because that's the only way to get a complete remedy to stop violating the, the trademark infringement, to stop violating the incursion on someone's privacy rights. We need worldwide takedown 
based on German law. This is something that governments like Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Russia and China have also been asking for for many years. And so what's really striking is to see that shift is has not been towards the kind of more speech protective, trying to pull the more controlling countries, authoritarian countries towards us, but it, we fear a shift of more of um, democracies towards saying like, look, I, I need to, at best, I need to protect the interests of the people in my country and that's going to require a global application of, of a, a order or an injunction. Um, but I think one of the other ways that we're seeing this kind of thing play out is actually in terms of service. Um, and you were talking about this earlier with the uh, the European Code of Conduct on illegal hate speech and the, the shifts that we've seen in a number of um, governments in Europe, uh, both at the EU level and member state level, to increasingly use companies' terms of service to seek removal of content that the government might kind of deem unlawful, but it's law enforcement's opinion, not like a court's judgment, um, and seek removal of that content under a company's terms of service because the terms of service or the community guidelines apply globally across the platform. So if you're the government of Germany and you, uh, you know, tell the company with a court order, um, you know, Twitter, this account violates our, uh, our national law against neo-Nazi parties, the account cannot exist, and then they geofence that account in Germany. If you can get Twitter to agree that that account violates Twitter's terms of service, that account comes down worldwide. Nobody can have access to it. That's the kind of global remedy that we see a lot of governments looking for, and it's where I think we need to be really careful about blurring that line between what is government action and what is companies enforcing their community guidelines, because community guidelines can be quite powerful as far as the, the spread and the scope of the remedy, and governments are definitely getting savvy to that. Yeah, this is, this is something we definitely thought about because the first, the first times that I remember seeing these when you would have a government show up as, like a lit, a pro, as a litigant within the set of rules that we had made, mm -hmm. it was, I, I think it was, it was odd because we were sort of like, as you say, if you raise a legal claim or if you raise like a state threat of X, Y, and Z, it goes to sort of like the legal team or it gets escalated along a certain pathway within like any particular company's bureaucracy. But if you give like a very legible complaint that fits into the rules of content moderation within that platform and like work, works the rule set in a way that is very legible, mm -hmm. you might wind up getting a decision made that is much simpler and much more straightforward. And, and, I, and I would think initially probably what happens, people didn't realize like, oh, the fact that it's a state actor maybe should trip some other thing. Um, but I think we're there now where it's like, even if a state actor shows up and wants to be a, like a litigant within that like private speech arbitration rule set, the, the fact that they are a state actor, I think is given, my, my guess is is still given consideration to companies. But there's an, like, but, it, but it's, it's a really interesting like, um, like it's a really weird cul-de-sac that we wound up on this one. Yep. And I think it a little bit depends on how, how you get to that the question, like how are you answering that question? Because I've also heard from different companies that if they're making a judgment under their community guidelines, they want as little as possible information about who sent the notice because they don't want to be influenced by it, right? And so if you're guarding against the risk of being unduly influenced knowing that this flag came from a law enforcement official um, and you kind of shield yourself or your moderators from that information, then like on the one hand, I can understand that. You don't want to give uh, you know, more weight to something coming from an authority. But on the other hand, maybe that's not the right question to be asking. Maybe it's should we be in a different process entirely if government is at all involved. 
but that could also lead the company to having the very awkward situation of thinking, I think this content violates my terms of service and I'm going to leave it on my platform because of who notified me about it. It gets even more complicated if you're outside of the US and Section 230's strong protections and in a more kind of conditional notice-based liability regime where in fact, if you are aware of the content, you might start becoming legally responsible for it, um, mm. which is absolutely an angle that I think law enforcement across Europe that has a notice in action uh, kind of regime is banking on because then if if they if law enforcement knows that the company knows about this content because law enforcement was the one who told the company about the content that really starts i think truly invoking the the liability risk to the company in a way that we just don't see in the US because section 230 is as strong as it is on that note, uh, this panel has to come to an end. I don't think we would want to have it end otherwise, but I would like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for a great panel. <laughs>